Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher. I'm an associate professor and the Student Affairs Program Coordinator in the College of Education at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. So today's episode is part two of a two-part episode um, dealing with and discussing Hillbilly Elegy. Part one, if you haven't listened to it, focused on the book. And if you haven't heard that, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that first episode. Our guests last time and this time are Teddy Chastain from Davidson College and Jared Logan from Virginia Tech University. They're excellent guests as you'll hear today and hopefully as you heard in the last episode. So today we're gonna shift from uh, focus on the book to a discussion of the movie, a comparison of the two, and then some discussion about the implications for student affairs relevant to Hillbilly Elegy. Thanks for joining us. So as we start to transition to the movie, um, and maybe I should have said this at the beginning, but if you're listening and you haven't seen the movie and you don't want to hear anybody talk about the movie, now would be a good time to sort of <laughs> pause, go watch the movie, come back and listen to the rest. But um, what you all are talking about is the thing that really struck me as the biggest difference between the book and the film. The book is a bootstraps book. If you work yeah. hard enough, if you try hard enough, you can be successful. The movie, I, and I honestly wish that this had been made completely explicit, but the movie to me, I experienced that it as this man acknowledging he could not have been successful without the women in his life, his grandmother, his mother, and his sister. I mean, that is so powerful in the film, and that is not how the book reads. And I, I was telling somebody the other day, I, I made up this whole story about how J.D. Vance is working on the film and Ron Howard's directing it and they have very different worldviews. And it's like, I needed the movie to push just a little bit further, but I feel like, I wonder how much of this was negotiation after negotiation after negotiation of, well, let's, let's highlight this and the author saying, well, no, that's not what I, I, and I have no idea, right? I have no idea. But um, that for me was the biggest difference between the two. There are a lot of other things that we can talk about, but what, what were your takes? Like, it's very clear. It's not so far away from the book that they're not connected, but the book and the movie are very different. And so I'm just interested in what other things did you all notice, or was that the main thing that you also noticed? What were your points of comparison between the text and the film? I think that that, that was a major one for me as well, Michelle. Um, and kind of what we were talking about earlier of J.D. Vance, I mean, there's a lot of complexities to him, just like every other human. And I think you could read those really clearly in the book, given he wrote it about himself. Um, but they glossed over a lot of those complexities in the movie um, to probably make it a little more palpable, perhaps. Um, and to be honest, with it being on a large streaming platform like Netflix, I think they probably, that might have been the, the, the better call um, with the amount of people who are going to be viewing that and, and taking that in. And I think um, it was a beautiful representation of um, strong women um, and their relationship with JD in different forms. Um, but I think what I found so engaging were all of the imperfections and, and quirks and um, contrasting views that he has as a person because I, I feel some of those sometimes and and I would have loved personally to see that more but I do think it was probably the better call in the end for the movie. No yeah that that was my major thing is that it is very different than the book and again to Teddy's point like it's so that people can handle it like it's this is going on Netflix so like they're like 
okay, so thousands, many people are going to watch this. Like, we need to make sure that it is digestible to other people. Um, because, you know, when, when JD was writing the book, he is like, this is my perspective. And this is what I think, depending on how people chose to interpret it, is different. Um, and I'll also point out, even people that are not from Appalachia that interpret it, have a, they have a lot of opinions about it, which is very interesting to me. I'm like, because if you don't know it, you don't know it. So, like, it's very interesting that, yes, but that's its own rabbit hole of, like, the fact that people are like, well, this is just a terrible depiction of what he's saying. I'm like, yes, like, he's saying a lot of things that, that may not be true for others, but for some people, that's real. Like, and some of that is like, that is a hundred percent a thing that is so true. And I think when you watch the movie, that is for the masses. Like that is for, you know, that is for Netflix, that is for the platform, that is for the masses. It, it did hit a lot of things. And there's still some pieces from the book that made it into the movie that I was like, I'm glad this made it in because this is important. And it may not have been, as big of a thing in the movie is maybe something that they again like they've seen glossed over a little bit where they're like we mentioned it a little bit but if you have read the book or if you've had that experience you felt that um one of the examples i'm thinking about is at the very towards the beginning of the movie when he's at the dinner right he's at the formal dinner um and you know he has to call his girlfriend and be like which fort do i use i'm like yes that yes that is from the book to the movie, I still feel that. And when I watched the movie, I had to pause it because I was like, yes, this is this is so realistic. Um, and I appreciate it. And also, I'm a visual learner. So just like I can use when I read books, I'm creating the story in my head. But then to see it is different. Um, also, what's really funny is um, it, it took me back to like home for a second because I'm... I'm in Virginia right now and my home is in North Carolina. So when I was watching it, I was like, this is similar to home. They talk like me. Like they like this sounds like the people that I engage with back home. Um, and you know, there there's a level of where I know that I have to that I code switch in spaces now that I've now that I'm older um, and I engage with people from all over the place, I code switch. Um, but when I was watching that movie. I was listening and I, it's really funny. I caught myself sounding like them because I'm like, I can, I can let the guard down. Cause like, I feel like I'm talking to people that I know. Um, it's very similar when like, if Tay and I are talking to each other, um, if you're around me and Teddy for a long period of time, what happens is our accents start to like really come out because there's a comfortability that is then set up. And I, you do that with your close friends as well, but for Teddy and I, it happened very quickly because it was like, okay, like you're from where I'm from. We're like a few hours away from each other. You get it. You understand. Like, let me just start saying things that make sense to you. Um, I think one of the things, not even an accent, was a saying. Teddy and I started talking about chocolate gravy and people were like, what? And I was like, oh my gosh, like the greatest thing that's ever happened to this world. Like, what are you talking about? Like, how do you not know what that is? Like, how did your grandma not make that for you? And like, we had this full discussion with our friends and they're like, y'all that's not a thing and we're like yes it is it's delicious you should have it all the time i hate it for him i really I do, do. <laughs> no jared i mean that's so accurate i because i'll catch myself even with friends who i've known for a long time there are certain words that i really try and catch myself to pronounce them correctly when i'm with certain friends so i say theater instead of theater and i will try and catch myself because some people will call me on it and be like what and so i try and catch myself I don't even think about that if you and I are talking or if I want to say lawyer instead of lawyer, <laughs> like they're just, and, and you know, those are silly little things and maybe a lot more people pronounce it that way than I know. But I, I have found there are certain words and then also certain phrases where I know if I say them in front of some people, they're going to be like, that is so Tennessee. But if I said, Jared, we can go down here. It's like a hop, skip, and a jump away. You'd be like, okay, oh, yeah. make fun of me for it. And be like, perfect. I'm glad it's so close. Let's go. A hundred percent. So, you know, one of the other sort of, in talking with you all about the book before the film came out, um, the the role of the grandmother, mm -hmm. like that is, she is, 
it's almost as if the book is built around her. I wondered, I mean, on a very basic level, did the character in the film look the way that you pictured her when you were reading the book? And like what, and it could be, you know, attire or gestures or language, um, like a more of a cinematic critique, I guess. But like, how did that character, what were the, the strengths and the shortcomings that you saw in experiencing her on the screen? Because you both have talked extensively about the role of that person in your lives. And so did you see your own granny, you know, in, in the character in the film? I did, and I call her granny. And I mean, they even look alike. So the permed hair, the big glasses, those are very similar glasses to what my granny wore in like the 90s. And it just, you know, the thick rectangular glasses, always some sort of like, I don't even know what you call it. Like, um, it's not like an apron, but it's also not a dress. I don't really know. There's a few layers going on. It's for cooking, but you're not really sure. There's a lot of like little like floral patterns. Yeah, um, it I, I, in a weird place. Yes. <laughs> like, I feel like I know what that granny smells like. Like, I feel like I just, I know, I yeah. know. Um, Glenn Close did such a good job, I think, personally, just in how she represented her. And also, Oh, I feel like so many people, and I know this wouldn't be everyone's experience who's from Appalachia, but you, you've got like the sweet grandmother a lot of times and the tough as nails grandmother. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe they had similar experiences growing up, those two grandmothers, and they just went two different ways. Maybe they didn't, who knows, but like that no BS, like you're going to grow up to, to be a, an honorable human by, you know, if you steal something, I'm taking you to give it back sort of thing. Like I just, I related to that so much. I, I don't have any strong critiques of, of the, the movie representation of her because it, it was just so accurate to me. It was so good. Wasn't she always like smoking a cigarette? I don't know. I just feel like it was just all, it was just so good. It was just so on point. This is so funny because I also call my grandma my granny. So this is like perfect. Literally the way Tatis describes her granny is my granny, but black. So that's literally who she is. <laughs> so funny because I was watching Blink Close and I was like, are you Gladys? My grandma's name is Gladys. And I'm like, Gladys. Gladys? like is this who you are? The glasses, the like, there's like a slight hunch in her back. Like all of that. And I also grew up with a tough as nail granny. Like that is who she is. She raised 11 children, yes, birthed and raised 11 children. She had a child every single year starting in like the mid to late 50s, so yes, like that is who my granny is. She's a matriarch, like that, and that's what I saw, and I was like, you're a matriarch, and that is who that is. Um, there again, like Tay was mentioning, the no BS, like if you did something, you're gonna go apologize for it, you're gonna take it back you will be working hard to get something done because there's no excuse. Like you will work hard. Like you were raised that way. Um, it's such a thing. And, you know, I 100% agree Tay. There is, there's probably the very sweet Southern Appalachia grainy that like, that sounds really great. That is not who I had at all. And I'm grateful that I didn't in some ways because I need, like we needed that because when I think about it, I'm like, Again, my granny raised 11 children. So, like, her demeanor is no BS because she didn't have time for it. Like, she's working, like, she's working, raising children and is trying to cook for you all because they're very, you know, stereotypical gender roles. So, like, she's cooking for all of you as well. Like, she loves you all, but she's going to show love in such a different way. And it may feel tough to others, but like, it's what I know. Um, so I appreciated Granny in the movie and I think everything. I think the 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 walk, the attitude, the the feeling, because I knew she loved JD. And some people may be like, oh, she's so mean. No, she loved him so much. And you could see it. She sacrificed so much for him. 
Um, and to both your points, like this movie was about powerful women in Appalachia and that was so good to see. Um, and I think that was the point of the movie. Um, but I don't generally have critiques about how she showed up. I think that is, that was realistic. And I know other people that also had grainings that showed up that way as well. Um, and almost perfection, if is what I would say. Jared, with you saying that, that just reminds me, I, I find it seems like Appalachian culture, uh, there is such an admiration for the women, even though they are in those, you know, what today we would call like the traditional gender mm -hmm. roles. There is such an admiration for women in this region. And, and, you know, maybe that extends to other, other areas as well. But I mean, just from my experience, when my granny talks about her family, it is 80% about her mom and 20% about her dad, my grandfather. So her husband, granny's husband, Papaw spent most of his time talking about his mom and less talking about his dad. And, and there's nothing wrong that I know they loved their father so much as well, but you know, these women were just such cornerstones and had to be so tough while also juggling, you know, what today we call, Oh, you know, like the cooking and the cleaning. Well, like that was just one little tip of the iceberg compared to everything else that they were having to handle because the husbands were out logging or out working at a factory or out doing whatever, you know, I, most of the stories that I do have of my family revolve around the women. Oh, 100%. They're tough stories. Just woo-wee. I, I don't know. Tough. Well, and this is really interesting because one of the things, well, one that I've been thinking about and the second you all just made me think about. So um, I was a little bit disappointed that his grandfather wasn't in the movie more because I feel like that relationship in the book was somehow they conveyed that that connection was close and genuine and deep, but there was so much in the book and it's kind of like, yeah, he was alive for a while, but then he was gone in like the first 15 minutes of the movie, it felt like. Yeah, yes. Um, but it almost mirrors exactly what you all are talking about in that he's important, he's valued, and there's love there, but the story is not, he's not the center of the story. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that you all just made me think about, because I really, I mean, I thought Glenn Close did a wonderful job. I was really blown away by Amy Adams mm -hmm. and her progression. And, you know, I have no idea how it was filmed, but there were scenes where she was in a good place and then scenes where she was in a bad place. And they're the scene where they're driving and it's a good place, all of a sudden very bad place. And for her to do that was amazing. But when he was at that dinner, he said, my mother is smarter than anybody in this room. Mm -hmm. And so it's still, even though that was like all of us, she carried baggage and flaws and trauma of her own. He still lauded her, you know, in the most, academic of spaces in the whole film mm -hmm. and so um I hadn't thought about that part of it like I mean I obviously saw it happen in the movie but I didn't think about stories and strength of women in that moment in the same way that I saw it in other places until you all were just talking about what you said so and I and I think a, a big at least for me and Tay maybe you can agree there's a lot of layers, not just the fact that he's Appalachian, but also because he was first gen. Like, there's a lot of layers in that, in that, at least for me growing up, my teachers were not the smartest people that I knew. My parents were, because, like, that is, they did it. Like, they have, they have, they've been able to create a life for me and my brother that is so different, and they've taught me so much, and we know that your parents are your first teachers, but, you know, when it's, I know this is also working with students because I work in Southwest Virginia now, so it's really like a nice full circle moment. But even when you talk to students and you ask them, like, like who is your role model? 
you know, some people at an institution will be like, Steve Jobs and this CEO and this person, they will say their mom or they will say their dad or they will say their granny or they'll say their papa. Like that's what they're gonna say because that is what we know. Um, and, and culturally speaking, that's what we're supposed to be doing is that those people are full of wisdom because they are and they have they have lived experience that is unparalleled in so many ways. Now we'll say it gets very interesting when you have two degrees and then you go try to tell them something because they're like, well, you don't know what you're like that has its own experience because I will never, ever to my dad or my mom ever have more knowledge than they do because they have lived experience. Again, I have two degrees and that's great and I'm very proud of those things. But like still to this day, I'm like, they are so amazing. They are so smart. They are they are leaps and bounds where I where I where where I am now and where they were at 26 are two different places. And their knowledge at my age is just vastly different. And and you know, I have a different path than they've had, but like they are still the people that I look to and I'm like, you are the greatest things ever happened to me. And this is awesome. Um, and I, th I think that is something that is instilled in Appalachia folk and folk that you, that, that those are your people. The people that you grew up with are the people that have the knowledge and you go to school and you get things and you, and that education and knowledge is important, but the people that started you off in knowledge are still the, the foundation of where you go. This is the thing that gets me like so jazzed. Like I feel like this is the heart of the conversation around Appalachian people is the dichotomy of this is a group. And again, I'm speaking from my own experience. I mean, this whole time I have it, but like this is a group of people that holds a lot of shame, but it's also a group of people that holds so much pride in, in their hard work and their values and doing whatever it takes for family. They may think their brother is a piece of crap, but buddy, they will knock somebody's teeth out for him in about two seconds sort of thing. And this is a group of people that value their lived experiences. Jared, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with that so much, but also many of them pushed this uh, millennial Gen Z generation to go to college and, and mm -hmm. then, you know, trying to reconcile, I, I sent my, my child to do that and they do have lived experience, but it doesn't look anything like my own and, and trying to make those connections. Like there is so much dichotomy in this culture. And I feel like our generation as millennials or maybe even Gen X a little bit, like so much has changed with the, with the, you know, the times. And I think this is a culture that is trying to reconcile all of that and hold on to the things that make this group who we are and the hard work and the values and the lived experience, but also be modernized and, you know, be okay with having an education and being okay with those things. But the, the thing that the thread, like I mentioned earlier, that is throughout all of it is even if you have a complicated relationship with your family, if you were still in touch with them at all and you were Appalachian, like those are your heroes, Jared. That is so funny that you say that. My senior year of high school, anytime I've had to write about anything, I've written about my parents. Mm -hmm. Like for college applications, for my senior year talk at my high school, every time, every time. It's not even a question. Yeah, I would never think of a celebrity or, you know, an entrepreneur as someone to look up to never. And that is just that like family thing. Even if you want to strangle them, sometimes if you have a relationship with them enough to where you are in communication and there's love there, that tr that's above everything that trumps everything, you know? And I think that's a cornerstone of Appalachian culture. Oh yeah. And I, when you say that, Teddy, I was actually thinking back to, Michelle's law and ethics class when we had to do our um, our pachaca chas uh, about how we learn ethics and when I think about it and this is no shade or shame to anyone else in our class but when we did that I remember doing it and I look at my pachaca cha all the time the way I spoke about my parents and how I learned ethics from them it 
and you know I could see other people because there are other people from our cohort that are um, also from Appalachia and you know when I, I the ones I remember are myself Teddy and Jordan who's in our cohort again all three of us from Appalachia when we talked about ethics and what our families taught us it is so different than the way other students would have talked about it and they talked about their families and they love their parents and they're great and they're awesome but like I could probably tell you me Teddy and Jordan probably spent the most time talking about our parents in learning ethics in learning who who and what we were supposed to be because their opinion of us is so important in in so many ways and it, it you know, I, there's an idea that doesn't go by that I'm like, what are, like, what would my parents think of me doing this? Like, what is, when I went to college, like, behaviors that I, I did not do certain behaviors because I'm like, if Rick and Penny found out that this happened, this would be a whole thing, right? And I was five and a half hours away, I could do whatever I wanted to, like, they're not going to find out, but to this day, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, my parents would find out, and um, I remember the first the the first not that I did all the time when I like happened to skip a class right like that didn't happen often but when I happened <laughs> I called my parents that sounds terrible but I was like hey mom hey dad so like I skipped a class today and my mom's like okay are you like were you sick I'm like I just didn't like I just didn't feel good so I just didn't go like is that okay and they're like yes like you're allowed to do that I'm like I just want to make sure you knew um, that that was happening. If I take a day off now as an adult, as a professional, <laughs> I'm like, hey, I think I'm going to take today off. Do you like, is that like a normal thing that I should be doing? <laughs> and my parents are like, rest is important. And like, I'm like, I know, I'm like, but you all didn't, right? So like you as my parents didn't take time off. So like, that's not something that like you mirrored to me. So I need to double check with you to make sure you approve of the behaviors that I do as a grown adult, which I don't have to do that with my parents at all, but still call and be like, hey, is this okay? Like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this and this. Do you think that makes sense? Like, I just sometimes just call them to do like a check-in. <laughs> just like, hey, like, I like I do is like a thing. Like, I'm just checking on who, how y'all are doing. Like, my parents are now an empty nest, so I'm like, how are y'all doing? Are you okay? But all of it to be like, hey, so like, I also have like a question. Like, I'm trying to figure this out, and like, this doesn't make sense. Um, I very much sat down with HR when I had to do the inevitable switch to have my own insurance, because that birthday came this year, so I had to switch over what that looks like. Um, and talk to HR, figure it out on how to do it. To this, I'm going home with my insurance packet to be like, hey, mom, like, does this look okay? Like, is this the right thing? And she's like, you don't have to do that. I'm like, but I like, I want you to affirm <laughs> that like, I made a decision that was important. Um, and I don't know if that's a generational thing, which I mean, I'm on, I'm what they call a cusper between millennial and Gen Z. Um, because generally, you know, when we think about those generations, usually Gen Z like kind of likes to do things on their own. They're very independent. But me, I'm like, mm -mm. hey, like, are, is this the right thing to do? Um, yes. <laughs> well, I love what you all are talking about because so there are some words I've been writing down as you've been talking. And I mean, obviously, family, strength, pride, wisdom and love. And so, you know, when Teddy, I think you said something about, and this might've been about granny, about being this holder of wisdom and insight. And then Jared, you said, I've never had a teacher smarter than my parents. I mean, that is, those are cultural definitions of those words, right? And so, you're not talking about, and I'm not questioning anyone's IQ in this, but that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about, no. these are people who know things. Mm -hmm. And these are people I do not want to disappoint. You know, that pride is important and I don't want to be a mark on that pride. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, one of the questions I have here, and we can sort of go there a little bit, but it's about how is this relevant to student affairs? And I think what you're sharing is so important. So whether a student comes from Appalachia or not, every student brings 
this bundle of stuff with them. And when we're talking about some of your shared experiences, this is important to know. You know, it's not, um, if I'm an academic advisor and one of you comes to me with a question about a class change or a major change or whatever, I think it would be pretty egocentric for me to say, this is what you need to do and expect you just to do it. Now, some people, given their backgrounds, that's exactly what would happen. Do this, okay, this person told me to do this, I'll do this. My guess is, if this happens with you all, it'll be like, oh, great, thanks for that information. Now I'm gonna go call. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Holding your hand up like a phone. Now yeah. I'm gonna fact check you, Michelle. You know, and that's, that should be okay. But it also means the time from the information I've given to you taking action and making a decision is going to look a little bit different than the person who's like, well, as long as I'm here, show me how to do this. Not better, not worse. And it, it shouldn't be personal to me, right? Mm -hmm. It should be, I am providing information. You need to make the decision. And ideally as student affairs practitioners, we're not deciding for our students ever. Um, but I just wonder with that sort of context, are there, are there other applications or other ways of seeing this work, whether it's the book or the movie, um, that you think are really useful for student affairs practitioners? And I wanna leave the door open for you to say, no, I don't think this has any relevance to student affairs. I don't think that's where you're going to go with it <laughs> conversation already, but um, just knowing, you know, you might say, no, this is, this is personally important to me, but in terms of the larger work, there may not be relevance. So, so what are your thoughts about that? Mm -hmm. One comment I'll make to what you just said, Michelle, what's interesting about my personal experience with academics, specifically higher ed academics and my parents and how I've navigated those spaces. I may have taken a little bit of time to call my parents, but if I did, it was not to get their opinion or they're okay, because that's not the realm. They don't know anything. And to be honest, I got to a place with my college education where I may have opened up my computer right then and been like, okay, let's do it. Because I, I learned from my parents that, you know, they made it very clear. We can't really help you when it comes to college applications, when it comes to picking out classes, when it comes to picking out a major, like we don't know, we have no experience. Here's what we do know about life and work and business, but past that you've got to kind of take your destiny into your own hands because if you ask our opinion, we don't know. And so I kind of trotted that line personally of maybe I would have consulted, but maybe not. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think that kind of leads into your question of, and this probably spans across a few different identities and, and, and cultural groups, but just again, speaking from my experience, for student affairs professionals that are working with students who come from a rural background, an Appalachian background, whatever it may be, um, these students have been figuring out a lot of stuff by themselves for a long time. And on one hand, they're going to have some pride there and they're going to want to try and figure things out on their own. But on the other hand, I needed a lot of guidance and I was taking help wherever I could get it with just about anything when it came to navigating college. And so obviously without demeaning or belittling that group, because again, there's a lot of pride there and people will get very upset if you talk down to them, just know that you have to come from a different angle with that group. If you want to like really reach them in a way that maybe other people don't like I could tell when there were certain staff members, faculty members, whatnot, that saw my potential, saw my interest, were interested in where I came from and asked 
real questions and knew that maybe I was a little bit different than every other student that walked through the door whose parents had also gone to Furman and, you know, they had had all of this assistance. Those were the people that really touched me that I was like, I, I think they, they may not have the same experience, but I think they recognize that I need a little bit of a different relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And so if student affairs professionals can take that into account, obviously you can't, profile that every student from Tennessee is going to have a Appalachian background, but if a student shares something with you that like you can tell like piques a little interest in, into thinking that maybe they, they have a, an experience like that, just ask some questions about their family, ask some questions about, you know, where the, whatever it is, we need that familiarity and that comfort because those students are in a place that they don't know what the heck is going on and they're just living day by day. Right. Yeah, and that is that is perfect, Teddy. And I I will go back for a second. So when I was and it's because I agree, when it came to college and making decisions with my degree and things, my parents can't could not do anything with those things, right? That's why I mentioned insurance because they I can talk to them about that, right? But in like classes and like Teddy was mentioning classes and involvement in things I'm like you have no idea what I'm talking about and I could say a word to you and it's going to go right over your head there's some pride attached to that and they'll never tell you they didn't know what you were talking about but they don't um but I'll, I'll add to what Teddy was saying about you know you're correct so like you can't assume that every student from even every student from Appalachia is going to need those things right yep but I do agree with Teddy of like, if you know that a student and they're like, yeah, like I'm from, I am from Appalachia and that's important to me talking about their families because that is the way they're going to talk to you. They're going to, that is, that is how they're going to open up to you because that's something that they can talk to you about because disproportionately speaking, people that come from Appalachia, a lot of them are also first gen. Um, they just, that just happens to be a correlation and it's for a lot of people there's a lot of pride tied to that as well. As a first-gen student, I, and I even did research with it in grad school, I would not have been like, hey, I need help. Cause that is no, like you, especially with Appalachia, you learned, struggle is not the word, but you learned to tough it out. Like you, whether you, like you learn to tough it out and be like, I can figure this out. I can do this, I got it. Like that even shows up in my work now as a professional, as an adult professional working in higher education. Like I have to set my pride aside sometimes and be like, Jared, you can't, you can do hard things, but some things are just hard <laughs> and you have to know where your limit ends and where you need to start asking for help. Um, which again, I still struggle with as a professional. Um, but I, I agree that, you know, talking to students that are from Appalachia it can feel like, I don't know. So there's two parts. Like, I don't want you to talk to them like they're incompetent because they are very smart. I mean, they have a lot of knowledge that you also as a professional can learn from and will learn from. Um, but there are some things that will go right over their head. And again, like Tay and I were saying, like there are sayings that she and I can say to each other that will both be like, mm -hmm, I know exactly what you're talking about. But to the academic advisor, to the involvement coach over their head, they're going to be like, what is that? Um, but also, I, I would say to ask questions to it, right? So if you hear a saying and it doesn't really like click in your head, be like, can you tell me kind of what that means? They will explain it to you because they're not, they don't believe that you're incompetent. They are saying like, that is something that's really important about working people from Appalachia. They would not put that on you. The way that people have put that on us, like we would not put your not knowing on you. So if you don't know something, ask them. Um, they will explain it to you um, because they are knowledgeable in their lived experience. So they'll tell you. Um, I will definitely say with Appalachia students, at least in my opinion for myself and some of the ones that I work with, they want, they're the people that will work with you to work with them, if that makes sense. So they're the ones that are gonna be like, 
I'm in this process with you. So together, we're going to make this happen. They do not want you to do it for them. That is not, that is not something that they want from you at all. They want to be able, there's again, that Pride is such a huge word. If there's anything taking this podcast, pride. Um, because that is the thing. Like we as Appalachia folk and Appalachia students, if you do it for them, they never learned it. They're not going to learn that. And some students want you to just do it for them. They're like, I don't know how to do it, so you figure it out. Mm-mm. Show me. Show me how to do this so that I don't have to come to you again <laughs> because my pride will not like my pride is so <laughs> fragile that like if I come to you more than once is it feels it feels different right um so and to your to your question Michelle of like is is Hillbilly LG in particular the movie or the book something that higher education could use absolutely I think there's narratives that are tied to that and I think there's a lot of through the controversy and through some of the things, if you read Hillbilly LG as a personal narrative, you will take something from it. But if you are bringing, if you're, and, and it's hard, it's hard as professionals to turn off that scholarly mind in a lot of ways, but Hillbilly LG is one of those things where you need to read it for the personal piece, not from always the well, this is for everybody, or let me fully critique and dissect what this means. No, this is someone's experience. And you can hear that and take pieces of it and be like, oh, okay, um, this makes sense. Or, you know, I knew when I was doing, in grad school, when I was working with the mentorship program, I put on receptions. So I'd put on like these receptions with food and meals. I didn't put out a full set of silverware because not all students are gonna understand how to use each one of them. They're not gonna know how to, I think it's outside in, right? Is that, I think that's what they said? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're not gonna know to do from outside in. They're not gonna know that one spoon is for dessert and one's for soup. Like, they're, like that is not, don't overcomplicate things. We wanna teach them stuff, um, but don't make, don't make it inaccessible for folks that don't understand. And if you believe that's something they need to know, then that's something that you need to work with uh, outside sources, work with the career center, work with someone that if that's something that you have seen, you can make that happen because students wanna learn. All students wanna learn whatever that is, but I would, it, it is, it was upsetting, I can say for myself personally, to go into a formal setting and to see all these things and have no idea what's happening because I already feel out of place in it because, listen, I grew up barefoot in overalls. So like that is that, and that can be formal for a lot of people. Like that, that is part of it. And that's what I grew up knowing. So when you put um, an Appalachia student or people from Appalachia in spaces that are uncomfortable and then you add elements that make them feel like they don't understand, their pride's going to kick in and they're not going to ask you for help. They're going to struggle through it and it's going to be painful and it's something that they will remember. And that's why when I was watching the movie, that part about the dining was so, and in the book, I was like, yes, like this, like I could feel that in my body again (laughs) of like, yes, I know that experience. And I didn't have someone to call. Like I didn't have someone to call and be like, like can you help me can you tell me what this means what this looks like it it was something that you you just kind of struggled through and you figured it out and again that's why I even had a question I was like it's outside in right because if you've only done it so many times Mm -hmm. you don't remember it Mm -hmm. I still get stressed out Mm -hmm. at seated meals 100% it yeah and it is and it, that may sound really odd to people, but like it, it is a fear that for me, it's a fear that like creeps up from my stomach of like, all right, we're going to a formal meal. That means this. And for me, there's, for me personally, I, two identities like pop up immediately. I'm like my blackness and my Appalachian-ness, if that's a word we're going to call it today. Um, those things come up because it's like, okay, so we know disproportionately like African-American or just people of color may not engage in formal 
things often. That's not something that's always a part of the culture. But even when, then when you're from Appalachia, you're adding in another layer of like, I'm entering into a space that I, I, again, I already feel like an outsider and now we've made it more, like now it's bigger. Um, and especially when that's something that has to happen often. Like if you work, if you're working in higher ed and you're working with, Tay, you work with development, so I'm sure that's really fun. And there's a lot that goes into that, right? So like, you know, when I also serve as a chapter advisor for a fraternity on campus and we have like formal dinners when I work with headquarters, I'm like, okay, so like, I I have to know this. And it's, it's literally something that you have to like go back and like, sometimes you have to Google it before you go because that sounds outrageous, but sometimes you're just like, I need to Google this one more time. I need to find a YouTube video. And formal dinners are just like the whole dining setup is one thing. The other part is, you know, when for me, another thing was like, I mean, I'm in a fraternity when we had to wear a bow tie. Who teaches you how to wear a bow tie? That's not something that we would ever do. Someone's going to wear a tie. So to learn how to do that can be traumatizing and to be like, oh, I have to learn. Like I'm having to learn how to be in a space and that is, that's a lot. Like I have, I have to do research on how to engage in something that other people inherently, apparently already know how to do. Mm -hmm. yes. See, this is, oh, go ahead, Teddy. No, it's okay. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, this is where I see the works being transferable. So I'm first gen. So I'm the same way. I would never have called my parents about academic stuff because I did that once. And my mom's response, as I'm crying on the phone, because I don't know how to drop a class, is, well, I guess you better figure that out. Mm. Okay, best thing that ever happened to me. Did not feel good in that moment. But all of this, I have to Google it. You know, that's what I hear in the book, see in the movie, and hear you all talking about. We, we are problem solvers. We will figure it out. That is what and I don't know if this language is appropriate or not, but I feel like it's what you all have said. This is what my people do. This is what my culture has taught me. This is what is valued in my family. And so then putting it in a higher ed context or putting it in whatever system or structure or organization you want to, it's, it's often framed either externally or messages that students might give themselves internally as deficit. But what the asset is, is we'll figure it out. You know, we might be uncomfortable. We might make mistakes along the way. Um, to your point, Jared, those feelings might kick in the very next time we have to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. But it's not persistence and learning and growth are always gonna be part of it. So, and I don't know if that took it in a different direction, Teddy, than where you were going to go, but. No, that's great. I was just going to, um, the, the last word of wisdom to student affairs professionals in terms of as you're interacting with these students, conversely, as much as you're teaching them, again, going back to, I'm assuming a lot about family here. You know, I know not every person from Appalachia has a loving relationship with their parents or their grandparents or whatnot, but generally speaking, those students are turning around and potentially having to teach family members or people in their lives things, or they come up and the family members are like, well, where did you learn to do that? And sometimes those family members are really happy and really proud of that student and want to learn from them. And other times it feels like a betrayal. Yeah. And so helping students, if you are in a role where you are talking about family dynamics or interacting with a first gen or Appalachian students families, knowing that that student is bearing a lot of weight and feeling this strange new duality to their personality that maybe they didn't feel before to their identity. I could have used some support in that way. Yeah. It's additional labor, right? It's additional labor to prepare and engage in the higher ed settings and additional labor to go home and translate, explain, navigate changes in relationships and all of that. 
Well, I, I want to be respectful of time. I mean, you really have hit on a lot of the um, questions that I have. I guess to kind of close it up, one, if, if someone's not familiar with either the book or the movie, do you have suggestions for them as they start to engage? And then the second question is just, are there other things you really wanted to talk about related to the topic that we didn't get to yet? Mm. I would I would just echo similar to what I said earlier. If when you're reading this book or when you were watching the movie, you have two thoughts in mind. One, this is one person's account. This is one person's account. Be very careful. We're not going to generalize everyone's experience based on what you see that happened with JD. But as much as this one person's account, there are pieces that are relevant. Teddy and I, literally, we just spent about 20 minutes talking just about formal dinners, and that is just one part of it. That is a true experience. That is something that happens. That is not something that's just JD's experience, right? That that is, you know, when you're thinking about JD's experience, you know, his his personal experience, something that you can be like, oh, that's that can be very much his is, you know, having an interview that he had to drive home and then come back. That is his experience, right? Like that is an experience that he has. But you know, if you're watching the beginning of the movie and you see that he goes down to I about call it a creek for a second, a river. Um, sorry, that is very Appalachian term. Um, I about call it a creek, actually, um, a river. Um, and there are people that are swimming in that. That is a thing. That is 100% an experience that happens in Appalachia. Um, so there can be things like that that you can pick up and be like, oh, that seems like that would happen often versus this was JD's experience. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily, um, there's, there's not anything that we didn't get to, but I think Jared hit the nail on the head of um, every identity and every culture I recognize is very complex. Again, of course, this entire time we've been talking from our own experiences, but just keeping that in mind, I think is, is really vital. Um, and I hope people can glean some really powerful things from it, mm -hmm. um, even if there are some complicated feelings. Great. Well, I thank you both very much. I, I want to give you a chance if you have, um, you know, some things that are bringing you joy right now. We're almost at the end of 2020, which I think everyone says kind of on the exhale, you know, Thank goodness, it's, we're getting there. But if you have sort of closing thoughts, anything you want to say um, that would be appropriate to air in terms of goodbye to 2020, or like I say, just stuff in your life that is bringing you joy at the end of what's been a really challenging time. Just want to give you a little bit of space. Oh, uh, you know, I... I've been one of those martyrs in 2020 where I have to be like, this year's just been so bad. And um, I, I take personal things with it because um, before we started the podcast, I was talking to Teddy Michelle about, you know, how I feel like I'm reliving my first year over because I've also been in my role about a year and a half. Um, and, you know, I felt like I was like, I'm understanding my role from like July through January or really through March. And then all of a sudden it was like, LOL, that's not happening anymore. So like, let's change all these things. So what, I, what I'll say is what's bringing me joy, um, I think now and as I'm going through is that I, I did it. Like that, that's what's bringing me joy is that like the resiliency that I, I, I like to claim that I have had to come out and be real and be realistic um, during this time. And, um, you know, knowing that I had to give myself, but also other people grace during this, which I don't think other people have practiced um, in a lot of ways during 2020. And this is not just in higher ed, this is in all other, you know, areas of work and career that people do. But, um, you know, providing grace, um, being happy with what I was able to accomplish um, during the time and 
what it looks like and you know, knowing that that I have gained skills not just for work but in life that you know have been really helpful and um, something that has truly truly been giving me joy is I've I, I did this in grad school when I thought my life was as stressful as it was going to be. <laughs> That's fun. And that was funny, right? Um, but, you know, I, I, I meditate now and I used to meditate in grad school. Um, but now, like, it is something that is a part of my life and it's a part of my, like, self-care for myself. And I know self-care is like a buzzword for people, but, like, truly, like, that's something that's bringing me joy um, to know that every day at I have 15 minutes that is just for Jared and I get to spend that with me. My phone goes on do not disturb. And I just sit and know that I am a human being <laughs> and not a robot that just works um, has been really helpful and is continuing to bring me joy. And I'm very much looking forward to this break um, so that I can feel human and feel like Jared again. That's great. Thanks, Jared. How about you, Teddy? Oh man, good words. Um, I don't, I don't have many, I mean, for me in terms of leaving 2020 behind, I, there has just been a sense of vulnerability among people um, that I don't think was necessarily present before. And that's not to say people are vulnerable in every situation they're put in, but I'm noticing pockets in work, in texting a friend in having a conversation with a family member or whatnot, where there's just a couple of layers of shield that are gone with people because I mean, we're all just real talk. Like everyone's just trying to survive. And that is something that I hope to hold on to as we see what the next year brings, whether some things go back to quote unquote normal or not is yet to be determined. But I hope we can stay a little soft and kind um, in, in the way that we have found in the pandemic. And I know in other ways, things have gotten really hard and really charged and really intense and scary, but there have been so many moments of beauty and softness and kindness in my relationships with people in a lot of different capacities that I hope to hold on to. And I hope others choose to hold on to mm -hmm. even if life, returns to a more hectic pace. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you both very much. I really, like I said, I've been looking forward to talking about the movie since I found out they were going to make the movie. So um, I just want to thank you both very much for your time today. So thanks for listening to us. <laughs> um, you know, we, if you get me and Tay in a space for long enough, we'll just start to go on our we're like the only two people in the room at some point so we just like start talking so i'm i appreciate the space but you know to get to talk about things that are very personal but really helpful to other people absolutely michelle i feel like you have seen us in a way that i have not felt seen with uh, with a lot of people in a similar role whether it's a faculty member or you know just um someone that i've interacted with like we have interacted with you and it feels like such a gift that you have given us an open door to share this with other people and to share it with you. Um, I can tell that you enjoy listening to us and it's really validating and um, it's a gift. So thank you for being you. We appreciate it. Yeah. I 100% echo Teddy. I think Michelle, you have, I feel like you have been putting me and Teddy into spaces to share our stories and you want to know what they are. And that has been so validating is the word that Teddy used. So that's so validating to know that, you know, it's not lost and that it, it is something that we get to use our own platform to talk about things that our students, but also other people that we engage with also deal with. So I 100% I appreciate this being able to be authentic and talk about things that relate to my life. And I know Tay feels the same way with someone that gets it and wants to understand more. Well, I mean, you both are absolutely right. I love listening to you. And it's, it's just so organic, the way that you feel, feed off of each other without stepping on each other. You know, it's like you let the story conclude and then you say, yes, and. 
and then it's there are parallels there are points of divergence but um yeah it really is it's it's a pleasure and i'm really excited that we got to do it in this format because i think so much of what you've shared is it's important and it's not always made available for other mm -hmm. people to um learn from and so it's uh, teddy you talked about vulnerability and and kindness and gentleness and that's what the two of you really gave to us today in a, a really personal way but like i say it we carry our stories with us whether it's into school as students or into work as professionals and making the space to listen and share those things and and you both stress this ask questions to understand more i think um I'm just, I'm really grateful for you all. So, um, yeah, I, maybe I should make all of the podcasts end with, and what do you appreciate about Michelle? <laughs> <laughs> to wrap up, but, um, but no, thank you both very much. And uh, I look forward to more conversations. So I know there's more to come. Um, but I, I do want to thank you again for your time today. Um, I really appreciate you. Teddy Chastain and Jared Logan. Um, today's essay, essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA and we thank them for their support. Additionally, the show would not be possible without producer Erica Lee. So as always, much gratitude to you, Erica. My name is Michelle Botcher. It has been, it really has been truly a pleasure to host this episode and I hope you all have a beautiful day. Thank you again.